You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi, everyone. It's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to Seek Up, the Yoga Inspiration Show. I've been practicing and teaching yoga for over 20 years. I was never a dancer. I was never a gymnast. I was never anything physical before I started yoga. I had no prior training in anything really related to the body until I walked into the yoga class and it changed my life. So this episode is a little different than usual. I'll be taking a series of student questions. And if you like this format, please be sure to uh, send me a message, leave a review, and submit your questions so that next time I do a student Q&A, your question can be here too. I'd also like to invite everyone to join me for the January Yoga Challenge that I'm hosting which is yoga for inflexible people. And it starts on January 1st. And each day we'll be having a new yoga class that will feature tips and tricks and practices geared towards improving your flexibility in an accessible and adaptive manner. One day we'll be focused on a traditional yoga mat class and the next day we'll be focused on a chair yoga class. So there'll be really something for everyone. All right, now it's time to dive into the questions. Question number one. How does drishti, which is the focal point, the gazing point, help calm the mind while at the same time improve flexibility? First of all, when, whenever you're trying to concentrate the mind, it's very useful to have a single point of attention. If your eyes are darting around looking here and looking there, or if you're closing your eyes too much and drifting off towards sleep, the mind can be a little bit unfocused. So the purpose of drishti, which is the gazing point again, or the focal point, is to help concentrate the mind on a single point of attention. Concentrating the mind on a single point of attention helps calm the nervous system. And when the nervous system is able to be in a state of relaxation and release, that helps the body release. The more calm your nervous system is, then obviously the more flexible your body will be. And in this way, a calm, clear mind leads to a calm and flexible body. Second question, why do we not practice Ashtanga yoga during the full moon or the new moon? Well, this is a really common question that many students who are new to the practice uh, ask about. Now, the Ashtanga yoga practice comes from the traditional practice and a traditional lineage within India. So uh, my teachers are Hindu and Brahmins, and they follow the very traditional rigors of, the, of that, their faith and their placement within that faith. On the new moon and the full moon, there are other things to be done than, during the, than the Ashtanga yoga asana practice. Uh, for example, sometimes during the moon days, there are various activities which are recommended like meditation or uh, purification rituals that, or, or, or study rituals that are not related to doing asana. The new moon and the full moon are also peak energy points. So it's out of respect to these peak energy points and the cycles of our sort of body and our placement here on the planet that we try to avoid asana practice at those peak moments so that we can respect the lunar cycle and we can respect how our body is responding to these peak highs and peak lows and to utilize these times for more introspective points of practice. One of the things I always like to say is that 
giving up the practice on the new and the full moon is itself a form of flexibility because we're releasing or letting go of our attachment to the practice. We're essentially becoming more flexible in our mind. Next question. If I am pressed for time and want to improve my flexibility, can a short practice help me achieve that? Yes, absolutely. I always say that it's better to do five minutes a day consistently than one hour once a week. As little as five minutes can make a difference in the quality of your day, the quality of your breath, the quality of how your body feels. So it's very possible to get some results uh, just from practicing a short little bit. Never think you need to do it all or nothing. That type of thinking is called all or nothing thinking and actually prevents a lot of people from doing the practice. For example, if you think I'm only going to do it if I can practice the full hour and a half, sweaty, you know, full on Mysore style, full primary series, Ashtanga yoga practice or nothing. It's better to get on the mat and just do some light stretches if you're not feeling so well, or it's better to get on the mat and just do sun salutations if you have energy, but you don't have time. So do what you can and trust that little by little, those improvements are accumulating. Next question. Is the upcoming January challenge suitable for beginners? The January challenge is suitable for all levels, whether you are a beginner to the practice or you're learning to just start the yoga practice and want to improve your flexibility or you're a long-term practitioner or a teacher. If you are an advanced practitioner or a teacher of yoga, then some of the classes may actually inform your teaching and may inform how you present the yoga methodology to others. So definitely this is for everyone. So please come and join. I'd love to see you on the mat. Next question. Is there a specific diet that can help with my flexibility and also improve my yoga practice? Well, this is also a very important question. I advise all yoga students to really take the time to strongly consider how their diet affects their body. I genuinely believe there's no kind of one universal diet for everyone. And there's a lot of different variations within diet that will help optimize your body. The basic guiding principle within yoga is to align all of one's actions, including one's dietary choices with the principle of ahimsa. The principle of ahimsa is that principle of nonviolence. So the traditional yoga practice recommends a diet that is primarily plant-based. And depending on where you are in the world and what options you have available, this could be a vegan diet. Or if you live in a country where you uh, have a different relationship uh, to cows than we do in you know, the United States, where there's a lot of industrialized agriculture, then perhaps uh, a vegetarian diet that includes a, a, an includes a very traditional beneficial relationship with the cow could also fall within ahimsa, as it's traditionally done within India. So if we have the idea that we're operating from the principle of ahimsa, then this can be a guiding light for you. Of course, there are exceptions to merely following a plant-based diet and thinking that you're working uh, to optimize your flexibility in your yoga practice. For example, no matter what you eat, your state of mind definitely influences how your body feels. So if you're angry and upset about what you're eating or what other people are eating, then that kind of um, defeats the purpose of actually applying the principle of ahimsa into your everyday life. Now, there is, of course, the question of health. And if you or someone in your family has been advised by a doctor and a nutritionist to eat certain items of food that are not plant-based or are animal-based to support your life and your livelihood, 
then this is something that you would need to work on in a very conscious and considered manner to create the least amount of harm possible in the consumption of those items which are absolutely necessary for your health and sustenance. And this is one reason why I say there's no blanket rule for everyone. Even within the decision to follow a primarily plant-based diet, there are many different kind of granular paths that you could take. So for example, one student may find that they eat, want to eat a primarily raw food diet and, and, and consume primarily fruits, nuts, and plants in their raw form. Another student may find that they want to follow a more macrobiotic diet and consume cooked vegetables and, 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 and brown rice and more kind of neutral tasting foods. Another student may find that, you know, they, that they really like very strong flavors and really benefit from a very robust kind of multicultural diet. And in this way, you want to just use the practice as a laboratory to make sure that you feel the impact of what you're eating within your own body and you're conscious of the impact of what you're eating within the impact or broader implications of society at large. And remember, Nothing that you eat is more important than the thoughts that you think. So remember to be grateful as you're eating and what you're eating. And remember that the choice is always only for yourself. We can't choose for anyone else because it's always about optimizing our own body and optimizing our own life. Next question. How long did it take you to become flexible once you started practicing? I started to see a big improvement in flexibility after about a year of practice. But it was really after 10 years of practice that I felt like the, the solid foundation of strength and flexibility were really grounded within my body. Remember, I was never a dancer. I was never a gymnast. I was not naturally flexible. I had to practice and work at everything within the yoga practice. It's important that to understand that gains within the yoga practice are not only measured physically, but also measured really internally by the change in the quality of your mind, the change in the quality of the inner atmosphere, you know, how you feel when you wake up in the morning, the quality of your relationship with yourself and others. And these are things that you kind of need to take the long, the long game on. It's not going to be tomorrow that you're going to wake up and see, oh, I'm a much kinder and happier person. That's going to happen, you know, 10 years down the road where you'll look back and you'll see, gosh, I, I am happier than I was all those years ago. Next question. What is your go-to morning routine before starting your yoga practice? And the first thing I do when I get up in the morning is I have a gratitude practice that I think of three things that I'm grateful for. And they can be just big, big, like really, really big things like a beautiful blue sky or something really small, like, you know, the pillow that I slept on. I, I really enjoy a nice, <laughs> really good pillow. Sometimes I just think I'm so grateful for this pillow that I slept on. And that just helps me set my mood for the whole day. The next thing I do is I drink a glass of water and then I start my meditation practice. And so for me, I try to meditate as quickly as possible uh, from the moment I get up in the morning and have as least the interactions with the world as possible before I sit on the meditation cushion. And then I have a short pause between a meditation practice and I start my asana practice. So my morning ritual is very much about my sadhana or my daily devotional spiritual practice. Next question. How do you know when the time is right to take your first trip to Mysore, India and practice Ashtanga yoga at the source? What I always say is the moment that you feel the desire to go to India and practice, that's the moment that you should go. You don't need to wait till you're good at some of the asanas. In fact, I would recommend that you don't. It's better that you go as soon as you feel that pull and desire to, to, to go to the practice. 
I went when I was still very much a beginner when I was practicing Ashtanga yoga less than a year. So I really just recommend anybody who feels the pull, as soon as that tugs at your heartstrings, that's the appropriate time for you to go to the, to, to do the practice. Of course, uh, working with sustainable, you know, sustainability within your life and feasibility within your life circumstance as well. So as soon as you feel it, and as soon as you can make it work, then buy that ticket and go. Next question. Why do some yoga practitioners and yoga practices start at sunrise? Well, the traditional yoga practice is said to begin with a Surya Namaskar. And so this is the sun salutations. And so the idea is that you're performing the sun salutations in actually the hour before the sun rises. So this is to uh, symbolically stimulate the spark of the inner fire or the light that is within you. And the idea is that the most opportune time for devoted spiritual practice where we're using the introspective gaze to peer within and discover who we really are, that, that the most opportune time for that to happen is what's called the Brahma Murtha or, or the hour of God when, when the world is silent and most people are sleeping. So we say this is traditionally, you know, between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m., that those hours before sunrise. Now, I'll be honest with you, I'm rarely up at that hour uh, here in my life in the West. When I'm practicing in India and and my entire life is devoted to my spiritual sadhana, at that time, I do wake up even far earlier than that and get on the mat maybe even at 3 a.m. so that I'm completed with my yoga practice before the sunrise sometimes. And... If you can do that as part of your daily practice, it's so special, so beautiful. At the same time, when I also have a life to live and you know, job to do and you know, a husband to talk to and these sorts of things, I get up a little bit later. I usually wake up around six and start my meditation practice shortly thereafter and do my asana practice shortly thereafter. So I, you know, I, I usually practice along with the sunrise in a more realistic manner here in my life in Miami. Next question. How does the breath play a role in improving flexibility? If your breath is constricted and tight and you feel like you're um, kind of almost hyperventilating or forcing the breath, then your body and your nervous system is going to respond to that. So we have this idea that as the breath goes, so the mind will follow. And as the breath goes, so the body will follow. And we have the idea that deep yogic breathing helps calm the nervous system and concentrate the mind. And in this way, focusing on the breath is a great kind of touch point to really do the deep inner work of flexibility. We have a few more questions. Next question Can I participate in a yoga challenge if I have? arthritis? Uh, And this is a great question. So whether you have arthritis or fibromyalgia or any other medical condition that would potentially be an impediment to your yoga practice, it's very important that you don't stop practicing because you have this diagnosis. Instead, I encourage you to find out how to adapt and modify the yoga poses so that they work for your body. The most important thing to understand is that you're not trying to fit your body into the shape of the asana, but you're trying to utilize that asana as a tool for you to become 
deeper in contact with your body. So in other words, the the asana is the the thing that should shift to be most beneficial to you rather than you feeling like you're inadequate because your body doesn't naturally make the shape of one asana or another. Next question. How many times a week is sufficient for enough yoga practice? Well, I always like to say that the yoga practice is a daily ritual like brushing your teeth. The more often you do it, the more effect it has. So in Ashtanga yoga, we say six days a week, but this can be overwhelming for many people. So I like to say that, you know, as many times as you get on the mat, great. Three times a week seems to be the minimum to create a semblance of consistency and routine. So I would aim for three times a week as a minimum. Next question. What is the difference between a Mysore style class of an Ashtanga yoga and a guided style class? Oh, this is a good question. So in the Mysore style Ashtanga yoga practice, this is the most traditional form of yoga practice in our Ashtanga yoga lineage. And this is where the students commit to memorizing the poses and the asanas according to the direction of their teacher. And all different levels of students are practicing in the same room. And the teacher is going around and giving individualized help and guidance to all of the students. And in this way, you can really tune in to your own breath and your own body. You don't need to keep the rhythm and the pace of a group class. You can move slower if you need to move slower. You can repeat asanas if you need to repeat them. And this is really uh, the, the most traditional way to practice. And it's kind of like the best of both worlds. You get the group energy and you get the teacher's guidance, but you also feel like you're, you know, you're empowered and to do it on your own. And you're, you're, you kind of have to uh, find your own agency and your own voice and your own motivation within, within the practice. The traditional guided style practice uh, is the one, the, the style that is probably most common where you follow the group and it's the group energy and everybody's doing the same thing at the same time and you have to follow the rhythm and the pace of the practice. This is very beneficial as well because it helps shine a light on where you might be uh, taking it easy on yourself or where you might be unclear about what some of the traditional entries and exits of the postures. So I think they're both very, very beneficial. We've got two more questions. Should the practice area be set to a certain temperature? So that's a good question. Many people are home practitioners these days. When I practice at home in the winter in Miami, I have a little space heater and I like to keep the room uh, somewhere around, you know, somewhere between 72 and 76 degrees. I, I don't heat it up beyond that. I mean, in the summer, Miami is so warm. So honestly, we, we cool the room to 80 degrees before we start practice. And you know, my yoga teacher always said that, that the best yoga practice is that if the room is little cool to start and then warms up. So little cool coming from South India is different than, you know, winter in the Nordic countries. So if depending on what climate your home is, this will help you be able to adjust the temperature. So for example, here in Miami, we like in the winter, I put a little space heater on in the summer. Um, you know, we, we, we just air out the room so that it's, it's just, it's not sort of swelteringly hot. And I always somehow make a joke here in Miami. People say, you know, do you do that hot yoga? And I always say, yes, we do. (laughs) Miami is hot and we do yoga, you know, because we don't, we don't heat the room, but here in Miami in summer, if you close the windows, 
and you just don't turn the air on, it very quickly gets to like 9,500 degrees and it's the super high humidity. Um, so, you know, yeah, the hot yoga is <laughs> naturally heated with the Miami heat. Uh, this my yoga teacher would, would say that anyhow that the best practice was if the room was little cool to start and then became warm with your own effort and or with the effort of the, of the practitioners around you. Whereas if the room is too hot when you walk in, then this may prevent you from generating your own powerful internal heat. Similarly, if the room is too cold, you know, if the room is like 60, 65 degrees Fahrenheit or something below, you know, 20 degrees Celsius, then the room may be too cold and you might not warm up and you could hurt yourself or injure yourself. So you want to find that sweet spot, you know, um, somewhere, somewhere, you know, between 70 and 80 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe between, I'm not so good in Celsius, but at least above 20, between 20 and 30 degrees Celsius, where we're going to be maybe 20 and 25 is better to start and then let the heat build from there, you know? Okay. Last questions. What kind of stretches do you recommend to warm up before beginning your yoga practice. So one of the things that I like to do, and many of you have maybe already practiced with me in a yoga drills class, is that I like to do a few yoga drills maybe before my yoga practice or after in the afternoon. And so it really depends on what your practice is. Forward bend is really difficult for you. You could do kind of a hanging forward fold. If you're working on external rotation of your hip joints, you could do pigeon pose for a little bit. Alternatively, you don't need to do anything. You know, some days I just do the opening prayer and just start my practice. It's not necessary to actually do anything before you start your yoga practice. The practice itself, the practice itself is kind of exactly what you need. The practice itself is kind of, again, exactly really what you need in, in, in your, uh, to warm the body up, to get the strength, to get the flexibility, to do exactly what needs to be done to kind of bring that full feeling into in, you know, into your, into your body. So do it if you want to, but it's not mandatory. You can stand on your mat and begin the opening prayer. Well, everyone, these were all the questions. I am very curious to hear how you enjoyed uh, this format and to hear what questions you have. So I hope you keep the inspiration to practice. And I really hope that you join me for the yoga for inflexible people challenge that starts January 1st. I look forward to seeing you on the mat. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit, which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy, 
May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.